came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves. Radio waves. She sees radio waves. Radio waves. Astrophys brings the news. Arrays and dishes get different views. Are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcast. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta and Pangarang country of the Kulin Nation. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is the 15th of December 2021. We always include a community service announcement, asking you to wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible and as soon as you can, to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. For today's episode, we're zooming across 16 time zones to speak with Dr. Natalie Hinkle in San Antonio. Hello, Natalie. Hi, Brandon. Today, it's wonderful to be speaking with Dr. Natalie Hinkle, who is a planetary astrophysicist at the Southwest Research Institute in San Antonio. She studies the elements in stars and how the stars' element compositions impact the interior structure and mineralogy of their planets. She has created an amazing catalogue of stellar element abundances, the Hypatia catalogue, to explore chemical and physical stellar data as well as the planetary properties of exoplanets that can orbit these stars. You can see it at hypatiacatalogue.com. The Hypatia catalogue has evolved into an amazing research bonanza for exoplanet geology and biology researchers now and for decades to come. Thanks for speaking with us, Natalie. Oh, I'm super, super happy to be here, Brandon. You have an incredibly impressive lineup of other guests, and it's honestly really great to be part of the Astrophys alumni. Fantastic. Thank you. Okay, so... Before we talk about your research programs, your outreach work in the Hypatia catalogue, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Natalie, and tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place? Sure. So I grew up in southwestern Ohio, Mason, Ohio, which is a suburb of Cincinnati. And I sort of initially became interested in science, thanks in large part to my parents. They're both earth scientists. Um, my dad studies permafrost in northern Alaska, and my mom is a palynologist, which means that she looks at ice core samples in order to understand the pollen that's in those ice core samples and then sort of backdate and sort of determine the various vegetation during different epochs of, of time on the earth. So it was really a lot through them that I got to understand, you know, what it really took to, to do science, but also understand the scientific process. Of course, my dad, being the ever-effusing teacher, would always uh, try to point out to me different things that we'd see, different kind of minerals and rock. We'd be walking in downtown and he'd pat a building and be like, what kind of uh, <laughs> rock is this? And the answer was always limestone. <laughs> so <laughs> at least that was easy. But, but I really got to, you know, learn a lot from them throughout, you know, my entire life. But 
I, you know, I was always interested in, in space and in stars, but I don't think it was really until like the first time that I saw Saturn through a little telescope that, you know, it really kind of blew my mind. I mean, like Saturn, it was like a, at an angle and even with this, this crappy little telescope, you could see the rings, which just looked fantastic. And even a cousin of mine said at the time that it looked like somebody had stuck a, a sticker on like the this the telescope itself because it just looks so perfect. Yeah. So yeah, so that was really like I was like, oh, this is so cool. Like I can't believe we're seeing other things, you know, in in our solar system. So then I think you know after that I, I asked if I could get like my own telescope and then you know just sort of kept pursuing the science. And so yeah, that was really like I think the first time was really that that telescope that I really started to fall in love with astronomy. Fantastic, Natalie. So, after your successful school career, you completed your bachelor's degree in physics at Oberlin College, where you rounded out your education by including dance, theatre, and romantic literature. You took a gap year, then went on to complete your doctorate at Arizona State University at the brand new School of Earth and Space Exploration. I read some of your thesis, uh, mainly the introduction and the conclusion. Um, no, no, please don't read the whole thing. It's so dry. It's so dry. <laughs> yeah. And it very much launches your Hypatia catalogue. But before we talk about this amazing database, can you tell us how the very idea of the Hypatia catalogue evolved? Sure. There... There's a lot of astronomy data, just in general. There's a ton of data that exists, that's out there. It's online. It's in different kind of archives. You know, NASA runs certain databases and, and things like that. But to find the data that you want is actually fairly difficult because at the end of the day, all these different resources are, are splintered. And so it makes it hard to find, you know, if you want to understand these elements inside of stars, it was, it was really, really difficult to get that information. It was, all, it was all over the place. And especially when it comes to looking at the chemistry of, of stars and, and stars with planets, that became a real driving force. You know, we, we want to talk about planets and, you know, where, what their orbits look like, their, you know, how big they are, especially compared to the Earth. But another really important aspect is understanding the chemistry. And so that also involves understanding the chemistry of the stars. And, you know, for a long time in the field, people just kind of forgot about the chemistry. Like they, they only really focused on the physical aspects of, of the star, of the planet, of the system. And, and so there wasn't any real resource to, to look at these different elements and stars. So as part of sort of a larger a grant that was at Arizona State University, I started to put together a bunch of different data sets into one, you know, massive repository. And nobody had ever done anything like this before. And I realized they never did it because it was a huge pain to put all of that information together. You had to collect it and, you know, and sort it. And every data set is its own beast that you have to manipulate and get to the right way. So it took me a long time to start putting everything together. And once I finally did, this was, you know, a huge amount of data that basically just lived on my laptop. But it was, I realized, a very, very powerful thing because there was so much there and it was all at, at my fingertips. But there was a problem with that, uh, not in what I had done, but when I put together all of this data, because it was data from other people and from different telescopes and they had used different methods to, to really determine these elements in the stars. And so when I finally put a bunch of them together in, in one place, it was the first time I realized that really anybody had compared these data sets to one another. And because of that, that was when I realized that even when people measure the same elements 
in the same stars that they didn't get out the same values. <laughs> and that's a, that's a scientific technique, right? You know, you should be able to measure things in different ways, but get the same number. Yep. And, <laughs> and so here I was, a graduate student, not associated with any, you know, large team who does, who looks at these elements and stars. It was just basically me and, you know, sort of my advisor and trying to tell the community that like, hey, these data sets don't, don't match one another. And maybe we should talk about that, which um, wasn't, wasn't really well received at first. So actually, I got a lot of pushback from senior scientists who said that, well, they implied that I didn't know what I was talking about or that there was a lot of hard work that had gone into this data and I was making people look bad. And I was like, I, I didn't change the data. This is just the way that it, that it looks. And so I actually had a really hard time at the beginning when when the Hypatia catalog was really, you know, just an infant, trying to, to get the paper and the database published. People didn't really like what I had to say and and really fought back on on the, the takeaway messages from, from what I was showing. But I, I realized that it was a really, really important resource that I was sitting on. And so I, and, and I had some support uh, at Arizona State. So I just kept persevering and, and just, you know, trying to make sure that this, that the Hypatia catalog, you know, saw the light of day that other people could get to use it in a, in a way that was meaningful. Fantastic. Now, you've alluded to this. Now, given the big databases, uh, put online by NASA or ESA or other large collaboration projects, and you have put the Hypatia catalogue up there on your own for everyone to have access to, and that's amazing. Can I ask two questions about that, please, Natalie? First, why and how did you decide to make the Hypatia catalogue an online resource? And secondly, do you have... Any advice you'd like to share with PhDs and young postdocs about tackling ambitious projects? Sure. Yeah. Thank you for for this question. So, so like I said, I I realized that I was sitting on a lot of data. So I think it was over two hundred thousand abundance measurements when I first started. So that you know that's that's a huge amount of data, but while I try to make it accessible to people and it's available in sort of some rough tables and, and things like that, I realized that unless it was easy to access, people weren't going to use this data set. I mean, they, it would just sort of go off into the ether and, and people would keep doing the same things that they were always doing. On top of that, I realized that it was important to include additional data. So the Hypatia catalog is a, is a database of elements and stars, but it's also important to look at some of the other properties of stars, you know, their masses or their temperatures, things like that. And, and also can look at stars that have planets versus stars that, that don't have planets. So, you know, overall, there's just a huge amount of data that could be really capitalized on if done right. And so, so I realized that this had to be an online website just that was just obvious like okay now how do i how do i do this because <laughs> while I'm, I'm good at coding and i can i can program i don't know how to make like a, a front end website you know that's as, as fancy as i knew that it needed to be so fortunately at that time i was at vanderbilt and i was on a special fellowship that was for a data intensive astrophysics. And so with that came some resources that I probably wouldn't have otherwise had access to. And one of those was the very, very wonderful Dan Berger, who is a computer scientist at Vanderbilt. And 
I, I talked with Dan and explained to him like that um, I wanted to make my data into a front end website. So essentially I wrote the back end, but could he write the front end that would make it accessible to people? But you know, I wanted there to be plotting interfaces and, and filters and tables and like all these different ways that you could search for the data. And very magnificently, he agreed to help me out. And so he wrote the the front end of the website. And and that's how it launched. And so that I believe was in 2018. But on top of just creating it, I knew that I needed to advertise it like a lot <laughs> because yeah. if, if people don't know about a resource, then then they're not going to use it. So again, as part of this Vanderbilt Fellowship, um, I was given some research funds, and I poured that into setting up a booth at one of the American Astronomical Society meetings, one of the largest meetings of astronomers. And I set up a booth for myself. And, you know, we had a demo so we could show people the database and what it had in it. And I uh, sort of asked friends if they would help me like run it. But on top of that, I also got some really amazing swag. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought about this very hard. Uh, not only do I have stuff with like a logo and, and everything, but I got, you know, everything in purple. So I had picked a theme. And I also like I have carabiners and bottle openers and mint tins, which pop and is very satisfying. But on top of that, I have custom Lego minifigs. So the the little the Lego people, and so I let people uh, come to the booth. You could uh, spin the raffle wheel and make a little mini version of yourself with like Hypatia catalog <laughs> <laughs> on the on the torso, which was great because then people like were excited for this. I mean, yes, some were just excited for the Legos, but that was that was fine. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so so I advertised like really hard and to make sure that people knew about this database and that they used it and, and understood it. And and honestly that experience um, with having the booth at the conference was probably one of the most rewarding and validating things that I'd, I'd ever done with respect to the, the database because not only did people see all the data and all the awesome information that's there, but they also saw like how much time I had put into it and how much work it had taken to, to get the database to that point. And, and that was really nice. And that was super awesome to finally like see people excited for this resource that I've been working on at that point, eight years. Yeah. And now it's been 11 years. So, so that was really, really awesome. But getting to your second question, my advice for early career scientists who are tackling ambitious projects is that if you truly have something special, but also meaningful and impactful, so something that has weight behind it that you can really stand behind and, and justify that you shouldn't give up doing it even if, if people tell you that you should. Yep. You should just keep pushing. I mean, of course, it makes sense to ask for advice on how to do things better, how to make it more tractable, or how to get your message across. But if it's one of those things that you you just know deep down in you that that this is a, a really amazing thing, then just keep going and and don't don't listen to the haters. Essentially, <laughs> um, I mean, I had I had people very close to me who told me that I should quit, that I should actually stop pursuing the Hypatia catalog, that I should drop it entirely, which I just couldn't even fathom and. I, but I, I didn't. And I think at the end, it kind of ended up being the sort of weird chicken and the egg thing where I had to sort of give talks about my results in order for people to understand them. And then my results sort of became part of the community and people started actually like acknowledging that this, you know, was the case that these data sets didn't match and started working on it, like as a community to, to work on it better. But just, yeah, I couldn't publish the paper first. I had to give the talks and then, and then it all sort of 
fell fell out and that was really nice but at at the end of the day i i realized i consider determination and persistence to be some of my my biggest strengths because yeah i just i knew that the hypatia catalog was something important and it didn't stop despite all of the obstacles that were put in front of me yeah that's beautiful thanks natalie now Back to the Hypatia catalogue itself, which began, as you mentioned, as a doctoral research project with just 46 elements and around 3,000 stars in the local neighbourhood of our sun, and it has grown enormously since then. But can you tell our listeners now how and what we know about the elements in stars and how the abundances and ratios of these elements can inform us about the nature of the exoplanets that orbit these stars. Of course, I'd love to talk about that. (laughs) So the Big Bang happened. And after the Big Bang, the only elements that were really created in any real amount was hydrogen and helium. And, but when, after the Big Bang, uh, space isn't flat and things weren't perfectly symmetric. So after some time, this hydrogen and helium gas sort of collapsed, uh, sort of formed these massive balls of gas that eventually collapsed and formed the first stars. Now, it's within these stars that you have temperatures and pressures that are high enough for fusion to start. And what that means is that hydrogen and helium atoms can collide with one another and and stick. And so then in these first stars, you get uh, the first seeds of carbon and silicon and and oxygen that are born out of the hydrogen and helium. But the first stars, they didn't live for very long. And when they die, they explode. And so and their explosions, you know, went uh, out all over different parts of the universe in an uneven way so that the next generation of stars were made up, again, mostly of hydrogen and helium, but also these, you know, few seeds of carbon and silicon. And, and then they could build off of that so such that most of the periodic table of elements was created within stars. So now you know that elements are inside of stars. So the way that we observe these different elements is that light comes out of the star. If the star was made of pure hydrogen, the light that we would see would be flat, like just totally flat. But because there's all these other elements, we have the silicon and the carbon and there's iron and all these, all the other elements. What happens is that the light uh, goes through the different layers of the star and it gets absorbed by different elements. And because of the atomic structures, the different elements will absorb part of the light in different ways and at different wavelengths. So by the time that we get uh, the light out at the other side, there are all these different dips within the light's spectra. Now, because, like I said, of the different atomic structure, we can actually look at these dips and say, oh, some this one's from silicon, this one's from magnesium, and how big, like how, how uh, wide and how deep these dips are to indicate how many of these different atoms the light must have hit. And so from there, we can work out how much total abundance of these elements exists within these stars. So that's how we figure out the, the composition of, of these stars. Yep. Now, when stars are formed, at the same time, planets are also formed. In fact, they're sort of made from the, at the same time, but also out of the same materials. And so what we can do is we can try to understand what's in the planet by looking what the, in the star. Because at this point, unfortunately, we're not able to measure the, the surface of any planet outside of our solar system or you know, exoplanet. And we definitely cannot measure the interior composition of these planets. But understanding the planet's composition is really incredibly important to understand the overall view of this planet. You know, is it like the Earth or is it like Mercury or is it like Venus? You know, is there, are there plate tectonics? 
are uh, their volcanoes? Is planet an active planet or is it kind of a closed shell planet? So it doesn't really move. It's not really alive. And and ideally, because a lot of exoplanet science, we, we work towards trying to understand whether or not a planet could be habitable to either humans or other life. We want it to sort of look like the Earth because, you know, there's, there's <laughs> life on Earth. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> so we want to understand what these planets look like in terms of their composition. So what we do is, since we can't measure the composition of the, of the planet itself, we use the star's composition as a proxy. So we say that there are certain elements that we can go directly from the star to the planet. And from there, we can better understand the interior composition and sometimes the surface composition of these planets. And so that's sort of like the whole transition of going literally from the Big Bang to exoplanets. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. Um... So right now, the Hypatia catalogue has stellar abundance data for about 10,000 stars and 13, 1,400 of which host planets and another couple of thousand that are in multi-star systems. And there's now 80 elements and species and 230-odd sub-catalogues and over 370,000 abundance measurements. It's monstrous. It's huge. Can you tell us how researchers can and are using the catalogue, please? Sure, yeah. So I've set up the catalogue to be useful for non-experts and experts. So a lot of the people that I work with are they're geologists, they're biogeochemists, they're biologists, oceanographers. And so I wanted it to be something that they could use fairly easily. So, so again, so for non-experts, uh, I think a lot of people tend to look at the composition of stars with and without planets. That's a, a really interesting thing to do because we've, we've noticed some trends that if a star hosts a giant planet, for example, like something on par with Jupiter, then they're more likely to be enriched in iron. This is likely because basically you need a lot of raw material in order to create something as, as massive as, as a Jupiter. Yep. But then uh, if you go to like different sized planets, that, that story kind of changed. So that's sort of an interesting thing to, to compare against. Also, I, I know a number of people uh, try to find the composition of stars that they're looking at in order to make models of the planet. So they actually go through and they make composition diagrams where they uh, outline the actual mineralogy of the planet from the surface to the core, which is fairly awesome. In fact, even recently, I was uh, pinged by a friend of mine, and he said that he and his collaborator were looking specifically at calcium and magnesium for silicate weathering, uh, which then made them wonder what the variation was and in, in the abundance of, of those elements among stars. And he and I had only sort of worked together sort of obliquely. And so he even asked, like, do you know where to go for, uh, you know, to find a compilation of calcium and magnesium abundances? <laughs> and I laughed and was like, of all the people you could have asked, you asked the exact right person, <laughs> which is great. And and I told him, of course, jokingly that uh, that I was the keeper of all stellar abundances, but that I was a benevolent dictator. So I had a database and then <laughs> showed him the database. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, you know, trying to be nice. <laughs> but then, uh, but then, I, like I said, I've also wanted the Hypatia catalog to be useful for experts, and so I've included a lot of information there that's useful to them. Um, the way that we look at, at and try to understand the elemental abundances in stars that different people use different normalizations or they use different models and so I wanted people to be able to have that ability to look at only specific data sets that they wanted or you know not include certain data sets if they didn't and look at maybe uh, you know single stars at a time and so I really try to set it up so that 
the data was accessible and it had as many sort of bells and whistles as, as anybody could want, uh, depending on what level they were coming in for. And, and ultimately, I think actually I, people have used it on, in all scopes, which is really great. Fantastic. Oh, awesome. Okay, so on another tack, right now, COVID-19 has had and is still having a huge impact worldwide. How has COVID impacted on your research, Natalie? Yeah, so it's been sort of good and bad. In some ways, COVID's made my life easier because I'm one of a few people in the world who, who does what I do. And that means that no matter what you know university or institute that I'm at, I'm, I'm usually the only one who does what I do. So that means that I always have to work with people long distance and at different places. And, and that was fairly difficult before the pandemic. I, you know, I tried to take part in meetings, but there was nothing set up for anybody remote. And so I it would miss out on a lot of things. But with COVID, <laughs> everybody was remote. And so suddenly, you know, I was able to attend a lot of meetings and collaborate with people more easily just because, you know, everybody was online now. Because everybody is remote, it's become, you know, it's it's quite isolating and, and lonely. Um, I mean, it you can't it's not really possible to to reconnect with people and sort of recharge with them to to hang out and be like, oh right, that's why this is so exciting. And you know, you're not just fitting in a meeting between many other meetings, but actually spending quality time with my with my collaborators who who are my friends and you know really seeing you know what what we can do together. So instead it just became exhausting and and everyone was exhausted and motivation became still is fairly difficult to to maintain because it's you know a a lot of stuff piled up on top of one another (laughs) on top of that which was actually quite a novel thing for me I've always sort of been a combination like introvert and extrovert like I, I like getting out and seeing people but I also need my alone time but with the pandemic, I realized I've become much more of an introvert than I ever been. Uh, a day with even two or three meetings, and I am just absolutely exhausted and yeah. just basically need a nap. So, uh, so that's been that's been kind of hard to, to sort of readjust who who I am. But but I have learned some good lessons with COVID, and one of those has definitely been to try to understand more where people are coming from if they're acting unusual or not responding or getting back to me like they normally would instead of assuming that it's about me or jumping to conclusions or or getting angry I I realize that it's just better to ask like hey are are you okay are things going on and sort of take a step back and, and realize that it's not always about me or, you know, that people are, a lot of people are going through a lot of stuff right now. And I think that's helped a lot. It's, it's helped me, it's helped my collaborators. And I think it's helped me work through a a lot of different, you know, issues during the pandemic. Yeah, very true. And hopefully we can keep on learning from it because it's going to be with us for a while, I think. Okay. I think you're right. Yeah. And look, you're a world traveller who has had your wanderlust curtailed somewhat by COVID and you do weightlifting and you're a keen rock climber and you have a love of punk rock and Motown. So what's next for you personally, Natalie, and the Hypatia catalogue and your astrophysics research? Well, personally, Definitely looking forward to my workout today. <laughs> Weightlifting has been a real release and catharsis. I made essentially a very small gym in my garage, and that's been really nice. But more towards the Hypatia catalog and, and my research. So uh, still working on, on expanding the Hypatia catalog. As, as you mentioned, it's much bigger than it, it used to be. And part of that was a, a major update that we did recently, which was very exciting. 
So now I realize it's three times the number of stars and three times the number of elements that it was when, when I first started, which is pretty, pretty exciting. But, uh, but more about my research is that I'm actually starting to focus more on M dwarf stars. So, so our star is a G star, but if you go to the sort of the very edge of how we define what a star is, you have these M dwarfs. So they're very small, cool, and dim stars. And for all intents and purposes, they're basically some of the most ignored stars in existence. They're hard to observe because they're cool and dim. And for decades, most people just kind of didn't really care about these end dwarfs. But especially with the surge of exoplanet research, we realized that it's much easier to find a small, rocky, Earth-sized planet around small stars than it is to find a small planet around bigger, like, solar-sized stars. And, yep. and that really goes back to how we detect planets, which is mostly seeing how the planet, in, like, influences the star. So we realized that it's going to be a lot easier to find these rocky planets around M dwarfs, but like I said, they're they're fairly ignored. And so, despite the fact that for larger solar-like stars we have hundreds of thousands of different abundance measurements, when it comes to M dwarf stars, we have barely 600 element measurements. That means that we've only been able to measure about, I think. 14 elements and maybe 300 end dwarf stars. So, um, and going back to that 600 number, that means that we only get about two elements per end dwarf star. So we know nearly nothing about these end dwarf stars, which means when we start to find these small rocky planets around them, that we're also going to know very, very little about the composition of these planets. And so I've been a sort of focusing more of my research on trying to understand the composition of these M-dwarf stars. So uh, last year, I actually won a NASA grant to use ground-based data in order to measure key elements, uh, so magnesium, silicon, and iron, that are important for building rocky planets. But we're, we're limited being on the ground because M dwarfs, because they're they're cool and they're dim, their light is actually really difficult to observe in the optical region. And unfortunately, that's where most telescopes are aimed at is the is the optical band. So this is you know what we can see with our eyes. But when it comes to M dwarfs, best way to look at them is in the infrared. And when you're looking at the infrared, um, especially from from the Earth. <laughs> Uh, the Earth's atmosphere gets in the way. Um, a lot of water tends to absorb light in the infrared. So that's that's actually one of the main reasons why it's difficult to measure these M-dwarf stars. So right now I'm working on a number of projects. One is for a balloon-borne mission that would orbit Antarctica for 30 days. And another one is a small satellite mission uh, that would orbit the, the Earth in order to fly a spectrograph and actually be able to measure the spectra of these M-dwarf stars uh, without the interference of the Earth's atmosphere. And so those are the major things that I've actually been working on right now, which isn't to say that they've been funded, but I'm working on the, the proposals, and I'm actually very, very optimistic. I think uh, we're doing a very excellent job putting together these proposals, and I think we have a good shot at, especially at the balloon project, that's uh, something that we'll be submitting uh, in the next couple of months, and I'm very excited for it. Fantastic. That sounds wonderful. Now, as an aside, we'll be watching the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope in late December. I most certainly will. That's <laughs> going to have, you know, the hearts of every astrophysicist, every astronomer, every amateur astronomer, like their hearts will be in their throat watching this launch. It's been such a long time coming, such a, a massive change. For astronomy, um, you know, when the data comes down, but even now, the, the JWST has been such a huge, huge mission, 
And uh, yeah, it, it just totally changed the entire playing field for astronomy. Um, now, as a result, uh, there was a lot more focus on, on smaller missions, which is kind of cool. I mean, somebody like me could actually try to get one, but also when we get the data, that's just going to be super exciting. It, it, yeah, it'll really, really change the playing field. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, thanks, Nia. You've got a long and rich history of doing very popular outreach work, doing TEDx presentations, radio, television, web talks, articles in a huge range of publications. So can you tell us why outreach is so important to you, Natalie? Yeah, outreach is not just about talking about my science. I mean, of course, that's a, that's a big part of it. But for me, I think it also helps people to get to know me as a person and ultimately break down stereotypes. Um, I found even in my normal life before COVID, I would meet people at a party or at, at different events and I would explain to them what I do. Uh, a lot of people would just shut down. They would maybe be you know, scared to talk to me or intimidated by what I might say, or sometimes I, I felt like they thought that I didn't have anything else really to talk about other than than my own science. Uh, there's been, you know, a number of, of characters on TV shows and, and in books that are scientists, but that they're, they're mean or they're rude and uh, they, you know, they don't really have nice things to say to people. And I would just kind of get lumped into that that category which yep. was painful because like you said earlier I do a lot of other things and I have a lot of other stuff that I could talk about and and so I thought I think it's important then to to have people realize that you know I'm one I'm, I'm just a person and what I do is something that I'm passionate about but it doesn't mean that like I'm the smartest person who ever existed. I mean, I make a lot of mistakes and say dumb things and, you know, I'm, it, I'm just me. And, and so I think important then to make me as a person accessible and more, more of a well-rounded, you know, figure. So that way my science is more accessible because then you know, the hope is that others can see themselves in me and especially, you know, younger students could maybe see themselves doing what I do because I'm not any different than, than them. And so, so that's why I really try to focus a lot on, on doing online outreach because I think that's the easiest way to, to reach other people who, who are looking, you know, who are interested and in, in looking to, to understand different kinds of science. And so, I try to make myself accessible, but also personable. And, you know, I, I tell people I'm more than happy to be your personal astronomer. So, you know, if you have questions, reach out to me and, you know, I will, I will answer you and I'll get back to you. And if you're students, then, you know, tell me what you're going through. Email me, tweet, you know, DM me, something like that. And, you know, I'll help you get through rough patches. I understand what that's like. It's, it's difficult to to be a scientist, and especially for people who don't have any other role models, you know, might not know how to get started. And so, uh, and I understand that. So I'm help, happy to help people out when they need it. And, you know, hopefully they can sort of follow a, a similar path if that's something that they're interested in. Exactly. Fantastic. Thank you, Natalie. Okay, well. The microphone's all yours now, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges that we face in the lack of diversity or opportunity in our science communities in outreach or science denialism or science <laughs> career paths or your own passion for research or our human quest for new knowledge. The mic's all yours. So one of the things that I'm, I'm most passionate about is helping students uh, understand the hidden knowledge or expectations in academia. So, like I said, both of my parents are scientists and they're both professors, which meant that I grew up really understanding having a very innate knowledge of academia and, and what that means. But I see 
so many students who who don't, you know, have that privilege like I do, but also they don't have the advisor who's who can show them, you know, this is how you put together your CV. This is how you give a talk. This is how you write a talk, which are actually two very different things. This is what it means to network at a conference. This is how you take care of your mental health. So that's one of the things that I really poured a lot of my energy and myself into is to try to break down these barriers for students because these should not be hidden expectations. These should be things that we actively talk about. And so um, I actually developed a class uh, called Graduate Student Professional Development as a way to to really show students like this is how you do these things. This is, you know, explaining what's expected and um, the various things that you need to do and timelines that you need to have in order to to be as successful as possible. So I taught this at Vanderbilt. I also taught it this last spring at the University of Texas San Antonio. And um, I recorded the classes. I'm hoping I have all of the presentations and slides available online, but I'm hoping to eventually make the actual recordings of the classes available because I think it's important for students to have you know this information at their fingertips. On top of that, I also try to teach and, and talk about the lessons that I've had to learn the hard way. And the main two are that I think it's important not to compare yourself to other people. I've never really been the best at anything. I'm pretty good at a decent amount of things, but I'm not, you know, the smartest. I'm not the fastest. I'm not the end-all be-all of, of anything. But for a long time, especially when I was in high school and then my undergrad, uh, I would feel really bad if I didn't like ace an exam or, or get, you know, do better than other people on the homework. But I realized that, especially for me, it's more important to have a well-rounded education. And that's served me really, really well. And so, you know, I have a, a background in theater and I do sports. And, you know, so, and this is, not everybody can do these sorts of things. And so, so I think in that regard, it's important not to compare yourself because, I found that my weird but unique mixture has actually been quite a benefit to me. Even in my career, I know I can write really well and most scientists can't. So that's been great. <laughs> the other uh, lesson that I've learned is to celebrate the victories. In academia, people tend to feel that the, that the victories are assumed that you know you're you're going to get in into every grad school or that you're going to have your paper accepted immediately that you're going to get the grant or you know all these all these little things but yep. there's actually a lot of rejection in academia i've lost count of the number of various things that i've applied for and was denied and so with that regard it makes sense to whenever you do win when the thing comes through that you worked really hard for, to celebrate the hell out of it. I mean, just really, really bask in how awesome you are for, for you know, getting into graduate school, for getting that job, for, for having your paper accepted. It took me three-ish years to get the Hypatia paper finally accepted. I'll tell you, I celebrated it twice. <laughs> so <laughs> celebrated it when... But I got the acceptance email and celebrated it again when it was published because it was such a, a massive undertaking that I just needed to really feel this and feel like I accomplished it. And and so and I do that now. I have a folder on, in my email of things that make me feel good or things that I did well. Of, you know, I, when I got that NASA grant last year, that's still something that I like think about myself. I'm like, no, I did this. I did a really good job, and I thought I worked really hard on this, and I did it very pointedly and and efficiently and and I did a great job so go me and and I say that to myself if not to others literally right now <laughs> so it, it's important to celebrate these victories because they're few and far between and when you get them they're deserved and not not given to the imposter syndrome that I think a lot of people suffer from <laughs> 
Yeah, thanks, Natalie. Let's keep celebrating. Now, is there anything else we should watch out for in the near future? What else are you keeping your eye on? So, as you mentioned, there's the James Webb launch. So, very, very excited for that. Looking forward to that. Also, a few weeks ago, um, a massive report came out in the astronomy community. It's called the Asteroid 2020 Decadal Survey, which put together essentially all of the opinions and, and drives of where the community um, as a whole should go over the next decade. And so I'm really interested to see how that's going to change upcoming missions, but also like pursuits by various people, for example, you know, so, you know, James Webb is supposed to launch, but what about the next, you know, big mission? Like what's going to come out of that? And so there's, I think a lot uh, that might be changing in the next few months and in the community to sort of adapt to uh, the general focus of the community in general. And then, of course, keeping an eye on my own balloon project. <laughs> yep. um, should be submitting it in a number of months. And then, yeah, hopefully that'll get accepted. And then in which case I'll be the, the PI of a NASA mission, which I really hope happens. Uh, of course, you never know. About 50% of, of anything is, is luck. But um, I do strongly believe in, in what we're doing. And I think it's uh, really important and really something that could be a benefit to other astronomers. In fact, it was well received in the Astro 2020 Decadal Survey. So I have some support. So keeping my all of my fingers crossed and every appendage that that, that will come through. So that's what I've been that's what I'm looking out towards in the next number of months. Fantastic. Thanks, Natalie. Okay. Well thank you so much, Dr. Natalie Hinkle. On behalf of all of our listeners, it's been really Fabulous to be speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you especially for your time and your incredible schedule. And those on social media should follow Natalie's Twitter feed. She's at Natalie underscore Hinkle. And congratulations on all your great work, the Hypatia catalogue. And thanks for looking after Jake. And good luck with your next adventures. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, definitely a shout out to, to Jake Clark and the, the two uh, episodes that he did with you. He's currently visiting me in the in the U.S. and working with me on some pretty cool projects. So ha super happy to have him here and be able to actually work together in person, which is quite novel. But yeah, thank you so much for having me. This has been lovely. Very excited to be part of these episodes and all of the great work that you do. So thank you so much, Brandon. I really appreciate it a lot. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored, and we're very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from Rami Mandal at spaceaustralia.com. And for observers and astrophotographers, always check out Dr. Ian Musgrave's Astroblogger website. And we hope everyone has a very happy and healthy and safe festive season with all your loved ones, and we'll see you again next year. Radio Wave!